The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. How on earth are you? I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his high-octane co-pilot, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 115 of The Big Picture for the week beginning July 10. Coming up on today's show, Hermione Granger and Forrest Gump meet the social network in the circle. You had me at all of those things, Mark. (laughs) Also on the show, high-octane funk fest, Baby Driver will be pulling into the show. Plus, let's hear it for the third-time reboot, Spider-Man Homecoming. But who also hasn't come home this week as last week is Sam Robinson. What is he doing? He's just basically lazing around somewhere in the sun. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's the, the expression. The I think that's the expression he used when he when he texted us about uh, not being available this week. Lazing yeah. in the Lazy. sun. I think, I'm, I'm busy getting a tan. I think that I think that's what he said. Or maybe what he's doing this week, Mark, is going to see The Beguiled, which opened at cinemas on Thursday. Have you heard about The Beguiled? I've seen a couple of trailers for it, and frankly, I'm disturbed. Frankly, you're beguiled. Uh, well, yes, it looks like something I'm going to see at the same time terrify myself. Yeah, look, we're going to review this on the show next. Next week, one of us will do it because one of us will catch it this week. It's a film starring Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell, set during the Civil War in the U.S. It's about a wounded soldier who wounded soldier who upsets the secluded apple cart of a girls' school. Mm. Mark, uh, this film went gangbusters at the Cannes Film Festival, so you can basically tick a box that says arty. Uh, for The Beguiled. And so if you're into arty movies and you love stuff that went well at Cannes Film Festival, The Beguiled was out this week. And then I thought what I also thought I would do this, Mark, to indicate what else is around the place is do a quick whip through of what's on Blu-ray and DVD. Here's the quick whip through. Boss Baby, King Kong and Life. All of those movies are on Blu-ray and DVD this week. And all of them we reviewed on The Big Picture. So you can go to thebigpicturewebsite.com and check out our reviews of Boss Baby, King Kong and Life. Well, it's holiday time too, so it's probably not a bad time to be delving into DVDs. Uh, What about the small screen? Well, on Netflix this week, season one of Friends from College begins. That sounds kind of boring. (laughs) Friends from College? Yeah, pick this one up. It's a Netflix original series that centres around a group of friends who went to Harvard together and now in their 40s are experiencing a range of success or lack thereof and it unpacks their complicated relationships with one another in a series of... Sorry, I'm just falling asleep here. Comedic moments. Look, basically... Basically, Doesn't that sound like... It um, is. It's The Big Chill. The Big Chill. <laughs> from, it, from the 80s, that movie that's like Kevin Costner and chill. Jeff Goldblum. Yep, and, they yep. turned it into a TV series for us to all sleep through. I couldn't stand the film. I won't be going for the TV series. But if sure, you liked it, there Surely it is. the moment is coming or has arrived when a Netflix original won't make people just swoon and say it's the best thing ever. That has to happen, right? Well, Netflix is amazing at what they create, but it has to happen. It might be that Friends from College is that benchmark moment. However, check out uh, this one of my favourite programs on TV. Uh, look, if you check over the ABC this Sunday, you'll go to a Sunday Best um, on it, Sunday Best is basically a, a collection of documentaries. They yes, show a yes. new documentary. Oh, yeah, every you week. mentioned them before on the show. Yeah, it's brilliant. Eight thirty p.m. Don't miss it. And this week, okay, New Zealand journalist David Farrier stumbles upon a mysterious tickling competition. I've online. heard about this documentary. Is yes. it called Tickling? It is called Tickling. Yes. Um, and basically, as he delves deeper, he comes up against fierce resistance. You know, this shouldn't be revealed, but that doesn't stop him getting to the bottom of a story stranger than fiction. It's the world of competitive endurance tickling. Why is there fierce resistance and secrets that can't be revealed? I'm intrigued by tickling just on that fact. I don't know, but the fact that there is, in fact, competitive endurance tickling. (laughs) There's such a thing. It airs on the ABC this Sunday at 8.30pm. You want to laugh? 
well, or, you know, provoked or otherwise, go watch Tickling. Wait for the Netflix original series of Tickling. All right, Mark, before we get to our first review of the show, Baby Driver, you have a true or false to pose to us. Indeed, I do. The new blockbuster, Dunkirk, from mm-hmm. director-writer Christopher Nolan, is coming out soon. There's been a lot of talk surrounding this film and Nolan's desire to make it as authentic as possible. What did Nolan do to make the film seem more real? Okay. Okay. Uh, A, did he, in order to avoid using CGI, um, have thousands of cardboard cutouts of soldiers and military vehicles placed along the beach to give the impression of a huge army? Which is just an impression, though. Like, I I, I, I don't want to challenge your true or false here at this point, but that's still fake cardboard people. But okay, okay. Okay, there you go. How did he try to make it look more real with cardboard? Did Nolan insist that extras wear their costume for the duration of the filming so they get that lived-in look? As in, like, when they're offset, off off the entire time? The entire time, okay. Okay. Um, Night and day? Yep. Um, Or... Did Nolan expose his actors to hours of real explosions so they could react well? on camera to the idea of an unexpected air attack. I can't believe the expression react well could be, could be used around explosions. Um, my, my bet is somewhere with B or C, second or third option that you gave us. Tune um, back in um, after our next review yeah, and you can okay. make your own decision about what happened on the set of Dunkirk. All right, let's go. First review, do it. We've pushed back our What Your Kids Are Watching review to the end of the show because Spider-Man Homecoming is basically a whole family affair. Stick around for that. But before we get to Spider-Man, here comes Baby Driver. Great cast, fast cars, something about a baby and driving. You wonder what Ben made of it? Well, let's see. So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like a chauffeur. Anyone I'd know? I hope not. What is your name? Baby. Your name's Baby. B-A-B-Y, Baby. It's the one who say listen to the music all the time? Is he uh, mental? Mental meaning slow. Was he slow? No. Well, basically, we have been hanging out for this one. What did you think of it? I I thought it was good, but it didn't blow my mind. What did you think? (gasps) Oh, you, you, your mind was blown by I the sounds. I had a brilliant night. I, I've rarely enjoyed a film, you know, for, for so long. It feels like you would go in watching mediocre performances and, and script ideas and never quite catch it. And I really had a great time. Yeah, this year hasn't been great for memorable movies. And uh, the mate that I went with to see this film, Richard, he also had the same response uh, that, as you did. Um, he instantly badged it as a cult classic, which I think might be going too far, but but I also am anticipating that my reaction, which again is the good, not amazing reaction, is going to be in the minority. I think more people are going to come out of Baby Driver like punching the air, jumping in their cars, cranking up the stereo. Music all, is huge in this movie. Always dangerous driving after a film like Baby Driver. Yeah, but not in a way of like Fast and the Furious franchise. Not not quite as ludicrous and absurd. Even though there's loads and loads of ripping car chases in Baby Driver, uh, alongside the excellent cast that we also get. This is from the English writer-director Edgar Wright, who we haven't seen for a while now. Uh, He came to fame with Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. I didn't think Baby Driver was as funny and as clever about its use of genre. Um, This particular genre is car chase action film. The films he's made before, zombie films, cop films. I thought he did a bit better job of like poking fun at those. So I didn't think Baby Driver nailed it as much as those earlier movies did. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that if you're going in and looking at for something like that sort of dark, 
comedy, um, you're not going to see that. What you're going to see is more like an indie car film, and yeah. it's kind of interesting. And again, going back to my mate Richard, who I'm just basically going to like rip off a lot of stuff that he was telling me after the film, because he actually made me appreciate it more when we were talking about it uh, afterwards. He was likening it to that Ryan Gosling film, Drive, which again, I think is too far, and he was saying the same thing. But what you just said about this uh, this indie film vibe, and you've also got this lead character who's basically doesn't have much to say. You don't know much about him. Is has a wounded past. He's got one last job. He's trying to get out of it for the good, love of a good lady. Mixed in with um, excellent filmmaking and a top cast, all of that coming together, it is much more of indie cool rather than you know blockbuster mainstream entertainment. But I think a lot of people are going to respond strongly to it as a result yeah I feel like you know it's the first 10 minutes is going to be worth the price of admission the driving is so amazing yes and yet strangely what is even better is the use of music it's a massive part of the film it's just incredible uh, what did you think of it I, I, I really loved it. it it made me want to make a movie if I had if I had enough power and clout in Hollywood to make a movie I would try to make a movie like this where basically you're just showing off like how cool your taste in music is uh, there, there must be like 30 or 40 songs used in this film quite prominently and not just soundtrack they're written in like yes. they're, they're really well sculpted into the story yeah yeah and uh, it's almost a semi-musical in a, as much as this character of Baby who's played by Ansel Elgort um, is a guy who uh, yeah has come from this very wounded past and he, he basically lives his life and even conveys his own emotions through music and you get that prominently throughout the film and even his love interest Deborah who I really quite liked how they bonded together they largely bonded over music and they related well through it and a lot of the, the lines in their dialogue from music as well but it really demonstrates how people how effective music can be in people's life um, a pity though and this is a bit of a parental warning I think about ba- Baby Driver let alone the fact that it's MA15 plus um, I think the film it doesn't encourage uh, a it doesn't encourage kids to like want to know more about the partner that they might be looking into. Yeah, that uh, was a bit weird, like that, meeting in the diner and going, yeah, that's it, you're my yeah, life partner. Yeah, that was a bit weird. Oh, listen, that's one thing to drive away with. Was there anything else you drove away with? Mate, I think Baby Driver, and again, I'll go back to the bit where I did enjoy this film. It's a it's a great rollicking ride. Um, this is a good example for me of the different things that people can take away from the same movie. So my mate Richard came out going on about uh, music and how particular songs can soundtrack our own lives and emotions and how this film represented that well. I noticed stuff that I think was minor, but it really got me thinking. So everything from how there's a ridiculous product placement in this film, like Apple and Subaru and a pizza franchise. I thought that was a bit much. But there was this one scene where there was an off, off-duty soldier who tries to stop a robbery. Now, out of the scheme of Baby Driver, I'm amazed that I was left thinking about this guy. Other people will think about other stuff. I noticed this guy because it triggered in me uh, ideas of uh, fighting the good fight and, you know, whether you put on the armor of God or you speak truth to power or you go after justice and mercy or if you're a soldier of Christ, if you're someone who believes in Jesus. All of these kind of Christian ideas came up in my mind when I saw this guy trying to stop a robbery happen and he just does that off his own bat. And he doesn't just try and stop it. He persistently tries to stop things going wrong. Even to the threat of his own, like the taking out his own life. I was amazed by that. So uh, so Baby Driver, it, a lot of people will be talking about it. A lot of people will be spinning their wheels about different things in it. For me, it was a great example of what it can provoke in viewers, all kinds of different reactions from the same film. Basically, it's an excellent film from many perspectives. Mm. Well, look, Baby Driver opens nationally this Thursday, July 13. It stars Ansel Elgort, Kevin Spacey. He's an amazing villain, as you would expect. Yes, 
and John Hamm and Jamie Foxx. Is there anybody who's not in it? It's rated MA15 plus for strong violence, so don't be fooled by the huggable title. Baby Dreiser does put the pedal to the metal. All right, true or false time? Okay, so I was saying a little earlier, what did Christopher Nolan do to try and make his whole plot for Dunkirk seem more realistic and, and something that was going to really leap off the screen? Um, did he, A, in order to avoid using CGI, use thousands of cutout cardboard soldiers and military vehicles to make the beach really crowded with soldiers and stuff? Did he, B, insist that these extras wear their costumes for the duration of filming, night and day, so they get that lived-in look? Or did he see Nolan use his, expose his actors to hours of real explosions so they could give a genuine performance? B, the one where they wear their clothes all the time. You would think so, and yet probably they were just poor extras who needed the money and kept their clothes. No, actually, it was A. That instead, oh. of, instead of like the, the whole sense of of um of getting a sense of depth to it, he wasn't going to rely on all that nasty computer stuff. He actually mass produced tens of thousands of soldiers uh, in various positions and things, and military vehicles, and then some poor guy had to set them up on the beach. I guess for that real look, use cardboard. That's what Still I say. Still to come. On the big picture, Baby Driver has a fantastic soundtrack, as we just mentioned, so we're going to crank it up before Mark brings us up to speed on what Tom Hanks and Emma Watson are doing in the circle. Welcome back, near and far across Australia, to the big picture. Ah, and here we are again at Soundtrack, Mark. We just spoke a lot about Baby Driver. Music is massive in Baby Driver. This there's thing an understatement. Has, it's there huge. is an understatement. I haven't, can't think of another film recently that has used as many songs. I think even Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 doesn't feature music <laughs> as prominently as Baby Driver. Given that's the case with Baby Driver, we set our producer, Maya, a task for soundtrack this week. We said to Maya, Maya, look at the soundtrack choices from Baby Driver, pick one, and surprise us. So, surprise!
Uh, Mark, that, that is a bit of a surprise. So that's Phil Collins' Sue's studio, but that wasn't actually in Baby Driver. No, that, that's the interesting thing. Actually, right? uh, there are so many different tracks. I was really looking forward to seeing what Maya would produce, and she's produced one that's not in the film. Yeah, so, so we spent a lot of, a lot of times we we're listening to Sue's studio, which is a cool tr- tune from, um, from Phil Collins. Uh, what's that? Something about a jacket album that he released, you know, back in... No Jacket Required. No Jacket Required. There you go, from that, from that album. Great song, Phil. Well, well done. Well done, Phil. Um, I'm just going back through and looking at some if of the... Listening. Some of the... If you're listening. <laughs> looking at some of the notes that Maya sent through to help us explain why... She, she picked this one. And I think the reason that she's picked it is TuneFind.com. TuneFind.com has been remarkably helpful to the big picture for a long time now of letting us know what's coming up in movies and, and what we can try to play as a soundtrack as choice. Of course, it takes a lot of time to prep a show. You yep. might be surprised how many weeks actually go into each show. That's right. And according to TuneFind.com, that song is in Baby Driver, but Mark and I can report to you, no, it's not. There's everything oh. from Easy by the Commodores to some Young MC tracks to... Um, Kid Koala. Kid Koala to Brighton Rock by Queen. Like Fantastic all, and Queen, it opens though. with bell bottoms by John Spencer Blues Explosion. Maybe TuneFind has that noted down. But where it says <laughs> Sue Studio by Phil Collins, as cool as that song is, Phil Collins, it's not in Baby Driver. So, guys, let's just be very, very clear about this. The internet may contain some mistakes. We want to warn you. <laughs> we don't want to alarm you. But just be warned. <laughs> And, as it turns out, the internet is also really vast, Mark, really (laughs) vast, and so difficult to comprehend in its entirety that it's no wonder people develop conspiracy theories about it. And where conspiracy theories go, movies are soon to follow. Following in the footsteps of films like The Net. Remember The Net? Yes, I do. Yep, and The Social Network. I'd imagine more people remember that than The Net. Uh, Following in their footsteps is this week's release, The Circle. It stars Emma Watson. You might know her as Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter films. Stars Emma and Tom Hanks. That's right, Forrest Gump himself. Forrest Gump and Hermione Granger in the same movie, finally. The Circle tackles the idea of what happens when the social websites we love to frequent become all-pervasive and all-knowing. But why would human beings have any problem with the internet knowing all about you? We've got nothing to hide, right? I am a believer in the perfectibility of human beings. When we are our best selves, the possibilities are endless. At the circle, there isn't a problem that we cannot solve. We can cure any disease and we can end hunger without secrets, without the hoarding of knowledge and information we can finally realize our potential. Circlers, do you like to share? Sharing is caring. Mm. The Circle is based on the best-selling book of the same name by Dave Eggers. Emma Watson stars as May Holland, an average college graduate who manages to snare a coveted position at the world's most advanced technology company thanks to the assistance of her friend Annie. She's played by Karen Gillan. You'd know her from Doctor Who days, of course, Ben. Yes, um, Mark. Yes, please keep going. <laughs> yes. Well, like most technology companies, The Circle is led by a small group of futurists, the key visionary being a fellow called Eamon Bailey, who's played by Tom Hanks. And he's got the warm of a grandfather and the zeal of a prophet and he preaches a free flow of personal and public information that will transform human society. You know, he suggests that complete accountability will allow our best selves to emerge. As Eamon puts it, knowing is good, but knowing everything is better. (laughs) 
Uh-huh. And yes. working at the circle, May's enthusiasm fanned up for this brave new world. Mm-hmm. She soon finds herself being drawn into the ultimate endeavor to make every aspect of human life knowable. And therein lies the plot. Wow. Okay. So the circle. Um, so as as a company, the circle sounds a little bit familiar. It does, as, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you think uh, Dave Eggers, the author of this, and now the producers, the filmmakers behind this film, have any particular company in mind? Well, with I the think circle. They, I think they've pretty much taken a bit from everything. Now, Dave Eggers actually. This is an interesting thing. If you liked the book, The Circle, you'll probably love the film because Dave Eggers co-wrote the script. Okay. And so the circle is a fictional mashup of present-day tech giants, it's like. An it's kind of got the diverse technologies of Microsoft. It wields a world-dominating social network like Facebook. It preaches a sort of juncture of technology and artistry like Apple. Uh, and it embraces the same sort of free-flowing creative environment like Google. In fact, to be honest, uh, it looks like Google's campus in California. <laughs> okay, that's the whole idea. And his Dave Eggers' vision has enough hooks in today's world to kind of seem very plausible. Mm-hmm. It hints towards the dangers of that over-engagement in social networking. Yeah, what it sounds you know, like. which we're all very much sort of like rushing to see the effect in our lives. Yeah. Now, what was that thing you said before? I'm just trying to remember that uh, this character of Eamon says something like, knowing's good, but knowing everything is better. He sounds like the kind of guy, in, in I'm imagining, he must be cooking up some sort of dastardly scheme <laughs> to take over the world. Uh, well, you see, it, no, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to give much away, but um, I think it's one of those cases where um, people can be blinded by their own propaganda and not realise how... Um, dangerous things can become. So it, it might go. It might be turn out worse for Eamon than for everybody else. It might actually turn out worse for everyone else, including Eamon. Right, yes. <laughs> okay. uh, Eamon provides uh, like a, he's promoting a new range of ultra portable, ultra cheap cameras. This is key to the plot to Emma Watson, you know, and he's saying to her, so May, do you think you behave better or worse when you're being watched? Oh, creepy. You know, and, and, but the answer is true. I mean, like, mm. do you behave better or worse when you're being watched? Well, when you know you're being watched, you do behave better. And look, evidence one, speed camera. If there's a speed camera on the highway, you do slow down. The argument it's then easy to follow. Well, look, you know, if the world was full of cameras and everybody could finally see what everybody else is doing, wouldn't we all be better people? And that's the whole idea is that Eamon is suggesting he's a believer in the perfectibility of human beings. He thinks that we can become better, we can be perfect or near to it, and we can become our best selves when we're known. Okay, Whoa. and it's a very interesting idea. The troubling thing is um, that the idea is to, it suggests that privacy itself is theft. You know, because we all need to share information. So if I don't share myself with you, I'm stealing intrinsically something from you that you could know about the world. That's a pretty fascinating idea. It sounds like a lot of fascinating ideas in this. I'm imagining um, around these kind of ideas is where the Christian in you, Mark, is starting to to, to rise up, particularly that idea of being watched and and whether privacy is theft, but especially like that idea of being watched all the time. Yeah, as if the idea, I mean, the the film pushes the idea, and it's kind of believable that um, if we knew we were going to be accountable, we'd behave better. Okay, and that's fairly straightforward. And as a Christian, I went... You know, we don't because we all know we're going to be held accountable to lesser and greater degrees by our friends or by our governments or things like that. But also Christianity has spent the last 2000 years telling people one day God is going to hold you accountable for what you've done. And it's done squat for some people to actually make them a better person. Uh, The idea of being accountable will somehow make us better uh, just actually fails to make reckoning with the, the human heart that it will do sinful things no matter what happens 
simply because it wants to in the end you know and look people do crazy things on camera even if they're uh, they know they're going to be recorded and brought you know to light one day simply because they want to those warnings don't produce endless possibilities for good and i think if i was actually really clear i go as far as to say that the the thing about the circle is it suggests that perfection is somehow within our reach if we can just get the balance right but it's not the heart's always going to get in the way the Circle stars Emma Watson, Tom Hanks, Karen Gillan, Bill Paxton, and John Boyega, as in the guy from The Force Awakens. It's rated M for mature themes and coarse language and releases this Thursday, July 13. That's right. Now, listen, if you're interested in all sorts of videos and things that you can see about what the big picture is doing... I'm sure you are. ...you need to head over to one of our great supporters, Eternity. Eternity newspaper, eternitynews.com.au, has all sorts of stuff from the big picture, including this week you'll be seeing Ben's best movie soundtracks. Yep. Plus, me on how the circle proves social media is not your friend. Repeat, not your friend. <laughs> not but, your friend, people. But we're still your friends, and you want to stick around with us because coming up real soon, stay tuned for Fresh Web Slinging Antics ahead head with Spider-Man Homecoming. Welcome back. That's right. And what you may not know, but what you need to know is at thebigpicturewebsite.com, all the back catalogue of The Big Picture, all the past, what is it, 114 episodes, all the podcasts are there, as well as, st- well as stacks of videos, which you can use as resources when you're thinking Christianly about pop culture. Go to thebigpicturewebsite.com. Still to come in the show, we're taking a look at one of the most enduring and successful comic book heroes of all time, the amazing Spider-Man. Of course, the web slinger has been introduced to different age groups in a whole host of ways, not just comics and movies, but colouring in books and activity sheets and early readers and novelizations, all that kind of stuff. So this week for Press Record, Mark went to chat with a woman whose daily job is to help superheroes come alive for kids of all ages. Well, this week we're talking to Nat, who's actually an editor at Scholastic. And you might know Scholastic, certainly you do if you're a parent. They're the magazines that come home with the kids every second, third week, seems like every day, with all sorts of books, you know, that the kids can order. The good old book club. Nat, thanks very much for joining the show. Hello, everyone. Now, Nat, can you give us a bit of an idea first? What do you spend your time doing when you're preparing books for kids? So mostly you get a manuscript and then you have to go through it and make sure everything um, reads well, that it's anglicized, so it's Australian, because sometimes we receive files from America and we don't want them spelling mom with an O. So we make sure that it's with the U and then I go through and make sure it's the right page count because we don't want kids who are really young to be stressed out about a book that's way too thick. But we don't want kids who are old enough to read a thick book to be like, oh, this is too easy for me. So we make sure it's the right age group and um, yeah, just making sure everything looks beautiful for the children to read. And I take it you're also looking for topics that they really like. What are sort of the top products that you've been working on? So it depends on the age group, of course. So I think for the younger kids, it's really based on the movies that are coming out. So Cars 3, for example, Spider-Man Homecoming, Despicable Me 3 are just some of the ones that we kind of aim towards for the younger people. But when we're working with like young adults, it's really text that works for them and action stuff and all that sort of things that they love. Well, you've actually mentioned Spider-Man Homecoming, which is our big release for the week. What sort of things have you been doing for Spider-Man Homecoming? Um, so mostly colouring books. So um, activity books that younger, uh, younger children can read along with, but also do activities with. 
Now, you were doing a bit of home confession before we actually got into the interview about you spending your childhood actually developing comics for the Bible. Yes. So um, when I was in youth group, we wanted to make Old Testament passages easier to read because sometimes it is quite wordy in a sense. But I would adapt the Bible into comic strips. Yeah, it made it into a fun comic where it was just, I think, easier for a lot of the people around me at that age, teenagers, to kind of read a comic instead of reading the book as itself. And my pastor actually told me they still use it now and I'm obviously very far away from uni. So I don't know if I should be asking for commission anytime soon for them or not. But yeah, it's something I did and I think it is um, one way that is easier for uni students even and high school students and even primary school students to see the Bible recreated with visual images. If you're working for a major publishing house, as a Christian, do you see a great benefit in getting kids to read a lot more? Oh, absolutely. I think quiet times. You know, as much as we want to let it be engaged with technology, it is just going back to basics and reading the Bible. And maybe, call me old school, but I think there's a beauty in holding something like a book and reading the Bible and being able to flip between pages to find a cross-reference as opposed to flipping through your phone or your iPad to look for that chapter. Like, there's just something lovely about flipping and I think it's so important for kids to read because it's how you gain knowledge, it's how you gain wisdom and how you gain a better relationship with God, I think. Well, believe it or not, with this week's release of Spider-Man Homecoming, we've now had three different versions of the famous web-slinger since 2002. Three in less than two decades. It's amazing. Act- oh, it's incredible. Actors Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield have been replaced in Homecoming by younger version Tom Holland for yet another reboot of how Peter Parker became a superhero. With our spider senses tingling, Ben and I went off to the Sydney premiere of Spider-Man Homecoming, curious to see what remains to be revealed about this Marvel crime fighter. Hey, Peter. You coming tonight? I can tonight. I got the Stark internship. What's up, guys? Mr. Stark, here's my report for tonight. I stopped the Grand Theft Bicycle. Hey, could you do me a favor? Hold on to that. Is this anybody's bike? Oh, I helped this old lady and she bought me a churro. So, that was nice. I just feel like I could be doing more. Wait a minute. You guys aren't the real Avengers. Hulk gives it away. Okay, so we've just come out of Spider-Man Homecoming. Ben, what do you think of it as a feature? Mate, before we even get to that, I was impressed with this premiere. They were giving out free hot dogs and free mini hamburgers on the way in. No wonder people are still milling about. They're probably looking for their free hot dogs again after the movie. Yeah, that's us. Impoverished film reviewers. Okay, (laughs) what about the film? Right, right, the film, the film. Mate, when I went into Spider-Man Homecoming, my expectations were pretty much non-existent. It's the third Spider-Man movie in the last couple of years. We keep banging on about it, but it's true. And I was amazed at how good this Spider-Man movie is. I loved it. I think it's the most enjoyable blockbuster I've seen this year, easily. Yeah, actually, I was thrilled because I was thinking to myself, gosh, 
Uh, here's, a, here's a little Easter egg for people. You don't have to worry about a backstory. We're not going to spend any time finding out how Spider-Man became Spider-Man. Yay. No, and this uh, new choice for the role of Peter Parker Spider-Man, Tom Holland does a great job. I think it was a very smart move to make him younger. So Peter Parker now is kind of at the start of high school, not at the end like we've seen in the other films with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. So he's definitely got legs in terms of growing up through high school and seeing what develops in the next couple of movies. And there should be more movies on the strength of this film as we watch Peter Parker in this film try to become one of the Avengers, Willy, Wony, etc., etc., then coming up against this bad guy, the Vulture. All of that, I thought, was played excellently in terms of everything from a teen drama to a superhero action movie. It's, it was a great reimagining of what Spider-Man can be, and you're right, it doesn't even go into the backstory of Spider-Man. Now, that's one of the interesting things you've raised. There's actually an attitude that develops in the film about the importance of waiting. You know, so the Avengers are basically telling Spider-Man, wait, wait, wait. Were you surprised by that? Yeah, yeah, I was. Look, I thought, again, it's really smart setting Homecoming in this universe that has been, been created up on screen the last couple of years by the Marvel movies, where the Avengers are real, people know about superheroes, and we're in a world where superheroes look after us. So Spider-Man, Peter Parker, like everybody else, wants to be part of that, wants to get on board the Avengers team. But Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr., keeps going to him and saying, no wait, no wait, no wait, which... Is what were the words you were telling me as we were walking out? It's so countercultural, to particularly to Gen Y, yeah. like a generation of kids, quote unquote, that wants everything now, now, now. Spider-Man: Homecoming is almost slapping them in the face. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about Gen Y. The basic definition is that you know I, I'm here, I've got something to say, I'm prepared to contribute. You should allow me a seat at the table. Whereas the Avengers are basically saying to Spider-Man, I guess to the millennials, because that's really the age group he is now. Look, um, you actually will not lose out by waiting. To actually take on this responsibility. Even though this character of Peter Parker, who again is played excellently, I thought, by Tom Holland, even though Peter Parker often is the most mature person up on screen, the decisions that he's making are often fantastic. And I was kind of surprised that the Avengers team kept telling him, wait, wait, wait. But I'm with you. It sends a fantastic message that you don't always get what you want as soon as you want it. And there are some things that are worth waiting for. Okay, so there's got to be some angles that you felt as a Christian particularly spoke to you. What were they? Uh, um, I was going to say the, the, the chuckles and the action and uh, some of the quirky characters and all that kind of thing. Maybe not so much, but I wanted to throw them in there because I just thought Spider-Man Homecoming almost ticked all the boxes that you want from a blockbuster film. Where it got to me as a Christian, um, I'm watching this young lad. He must be, what, 13, 14? Um, 14. I'm going on 15. He's going on 15, that's right. And he uh, has these amazing powers, and he knows that. And he throughout the whole film wants to use them to do the right thing and he even wants to do that in a way that comes up against some adults and there's some dark moments in Spider-Man Homecoming that's why it's it's rated M Um, there's some dark moments where you get adults threatening his life Peter Parker's life and adults doing terrible things and justifying their behavior but you get this young man who constantly wants to stand up and fight the good fight as a Christian that resonates with me I'm not a superhero like I haven't got any superpowers but I want to be bold and courageous for Jesus for what I believe in and for the things that Jesus stood for he wanted to fight the good fight I as a follower of his want to do exactly the same thing so Mark I'm telling you at the premiere of Spider-Man Homecoming coming out of that movie I'm thinking about how can I stand up and fight a good fight in a similar way that Peter Parker did but mine is more locked in with what I believe and and know to be true about Jesus so mate talk about a a blockbuster that ticks all the boxes and is very satisfying Spider-Man Homecoming has got it going on and I'm actually glad they went back 
to Spider-Man again, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the franchise now. And hopefully, Mark, if there's another premiere, more hot dogs. Yeah, let's go web-slingers some burgers. <laughs> Spider-Man Homecoming stars Tom Holland, Robert Downey Jr. and Michael Keaton as Birdman. Well, I mean, sorry, Vulture. <laughs> it, I see what you did there. Nicely. It opened nationally on July 6 and is predictably rated M for action violence. Spider-Man Homecoming did get us thinking a lot this week about the appeal of superheroes. Wonder Woman's been doing big business at cinemas and female viewers have been flocking. But have there been other superhero movies or characters which women have loved? The answer is coming up next before Mark shares his top five list of the most misguided reboots. Welcome back to the show, you, you, and especially you. And here we are with our Vault segment. Before the break, we were deep in the universe of comics up on screen, including getting to speak with one of Scholastic's editors, Nat, and continuing with that vibe of superheroes and super ladies, Ben caught up with Insights reviewer Melissa and began by asking her a very specific question for the Vault segment about women and superhero movies. So Melissa, Wonder Woman has done great great business all around the world with men and with women. But surely there's been superhero movies and superhero superhero characters that have resonated with female viewers before. Um not really. What? Not really. Come on. What about what about Electra or Catwoman or Batgirl, Melissa? Oh no, no, no. Those are the worst movies put out ever i can't even <laughs> yeah that were pretty bad but surely there must be other superhero movies or characters and i'm particularly thinking of like female characters there are other female superhero characters haven't they resonated with female viewers in your in your opinion there is some i guess in avengers not really maybe black widow x-men there is storm there's gene there's rogue but they're all secondary characters they their characters weren't progressed am i hearing this correctly are you saying before wonder woman there wasn't really any superhero movie that women could connect with what i'm saying is that these superhero movies like x-men like avengers they connected on a human level it doesn't matter what gender you are with those superhero movies that you can still connect with them because they tapped into that humanity like even though they had these super abilities um, they still wanted to help others do you think there are some better examples of that so i hear what you're saying that superhero movies were for both genders whether you're man or woman do you think some in particular worked better than others particularly hitting the female audience again i'll probably say x-men and Avengers, as I said before, because um, you're not looking at just one one superhero figure. There's a lot more there that you know you can follow, like each character and kind of see different sides of that human aspect in each of them. So yeah, I think those worked really well, and I think that's why they were so popular. Why this, why Avengers is still going, why X Men is still such a classic. What do you think they reveal to us, men and women, about humanity? They reveal that. We're, there's that need to be to be needed, you know. That need to, uh, I guess that's that inner need to want to help others as well. But it's also a need to be. Maybe we're the ones who want to be saved, and don't we all? Melissa from Insights bringing us her insights on superheroes and women, which is basically that before Wonder Woman, there wasn't really much in the superhero universe up on screen that directly appealed to women. That's the verdict that you should be taking from The Vault this week. If you want to read more from Melissa, who writes reviews quite frequently, go and check out her stuff at insights.uca.org.au. Insights backs the big picture. We get behind Insights as well. So go and check out Melissa's reviews as well as Russ's and also my thoughts often too. 
turn up on there as well as big picture videos every week where Mark and I discuss all kinds of different pop culture stuff from our Christian perspectives. It's all over there at insights.uca.org.au. Well, the Spider-Man franchise has already been rebooted three times since the beginning of the millennium. Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield as the amazing Spider-Man, Tom Holland as the amazingly young Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Sony keeps remaking Spider-Man in order to keep the rights to its Marvel property, mm, no mm. matter how ill-advised their creations become. Which brings me this week to our top five. So here we are, we've reached the, the dizzying heights of episode 115 of the big picture and I want to give you my top five misguided reboots five let's start a little intellectual shall we let's start with 1998's Psycho oh great place to start now let's Think this through, people. Why? Why? Psycho was one of the greatest 1960s classics. You know, Alfred Hitchcock, amazing film, okay? So one of the most psychologically terrifying movies made ever. Hands down, everybody agrees. Please hey, continue, Mark. So, hang on a second. Here's an idea. Yes? Why don't we remake it? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we can make it better. Probably one of the most curious reboots in the 1998 version, uh, where it's directed by Gus Van Sant. Now, honestly... He's a good director, okay? Yes. But good Will so, Hunting. The guy made Good Will Hunting. So who chooses to do a shot-by-shot colour redo of Alfred Hitchcock's classic? Go back to that bit. Not only is it in colour, but he decided to remake a movie shot-by-shot. Shot, shot. As exactly. in replicate exactly what was up in the first movie. One has to ask why. Critics and audiences didn't like it. And honestly, the shower scene wasn't any scarier just because the blood was red. Four. Now let's get back to my more familiar territory. Science fiction, of course. Robocop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That was quite recent, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was. 2014. Now, the original 1987 Paul Verhoeven, you know, brutal and violent Robocop was really, really good. Ruka Hoare, you know, it just, it, it was really fantastic. We mentioned Robocop in, well, your son Elijah mentioned Robocop on last week's show in his Rogue Robots list. Go to thebigpicturewebsite.com, find episode 114 and listen to 12-year-old Elijah's list of misguided robots, and not misguided robots, Rogue Robots, where he mentioned Robocop, but again, for the record, he hasn't actually seen Seen it. But his dad has, and his dad's now talking about it. Yes, and I would affirm that the 1987 one is fantastic, but the the 2014 one, directed by Jose Padilla, um, stars Joe Joel Kinnaman, who's actually gone on to do much, much more and greater things. Has um, he? Who's Joel Kinnaman? Oh, Joel Kinnaman's in... Um, uh, oh, um, gosh. The thing with the thing? House of Cards. House, House of Cards. Cards. There He's you the go. opponent. Uh, and oh, also yeah. he was in um, the remake of the... Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is that Joel Kinnaman... This film did not lack for talent, money, or anything like that except story. You know, basically the remake of Robocop seemed to lack depth, them bite um, the one thing about the original was it was really darkly funny and kind of dystopian it had some real jokes in it at the same time uh, and yet instead we've now got this sort of lackluster thing honestly let's push on three Okay. But surely on a list of top five misguided reboots, they're just going to get worse. They from are. Here. So, yeah, so okay, my, let's push on to I, what's I'm, not. I might have peaked in my depression too early. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really should have saved some disdain for later. Ghostbusters. Oh, yes. Number three. Yeah. Okay, so 
directed by Paul Feig, starring Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, and Chris Hemsworth. Chris, who, who isn't, for the record, a lady. No, uh, but he steals the limelight from all the ladies. He okay? does, given this was the all-female, much-discussed reboot of Ghostbusters. In 2016, the idea was to basically bring back to the, the cinemas the reboot of the 1984 cult classic with Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and Harold Ramis. And this was going to be a hard act to follow in any case. And honestly, they, they're a horse that ran up to the, the jump and faltered. Yeah. Just stopped. Even with, and I don't know why people made such a big deal about it. Even with what I thought actually wasn't such a misguided idea of putting women in. If you're going to bring Ghostbusters back, you might as well do something different. What's different? Let's make them all female. I'm like, I actually thought that idea was all right. Not a bad idea. And, and I love Chris Hemsworth. As sort of, in fact, he steals the show as this sort of like ditzy secretary. They've reversed the roles completely, but what they missed was the chemistry. Mm, it was just mm. the chemistry between Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and Harold Ramis just was perfect. Pitch yes. Perfect. And yet, even even though in their own rights, Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig, etc., are funny people, they just never manage to meld on screen. You know, so ill-advised reboot, people. Two. What's going to top 2016's Ghostbusters? Well, I've got to say, Ghostbusters is nowhere near as ill-advised as the reboot of The Pink Panther. Oh. <laughs> now, in 2006, oh, yeah. somebody said, hey, that Steve Martin guy, he's funny. He is funny. He is a very funny man. No one is saying Steve Martin I was Martin saying in funny. 2006 that Steve Martin was funny. That was, and, I was definitely saying that. But it's very hard to replace the master impressionist Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau. Yes, you know, yes. It, it was just not enough. It basically turned into a Disney reboot. You Do know? you think... Uh, Steve Martin got it in his head that this would be a good idea because Father of the Bride, which was a remake of a Spencer Tracy movie back from, what, the 50s, I think, uh, he it, that actually went pretty well at cinemas. That was in the 90s. Uh, Steve Martin was starring in it with Diane Keaton. It, it did all right. Maybe he thought, oh, I, I'm, I'm all right at this remake. I've done reboot. it once. I've done it once. I can take on Peter Sellers. No, I think somebody offered him a large amount of money. Right, and right. Basically because they just thought, here's a comic idea that hasn't been redone in a while. There's a comedian. We'll mash the two together and it'll all work. The Pink Panther 2006 version, directed by Sean Levy, is awkward, and Steve Martin's French accent is something only an American would sound like, think it sounded like French. But, the, the, but, but like, in the defense of Steve Martin, then, the, the Peter Sellers Inspector Clouseau accent was always meant to be that hilarious, outrageous French accent, but Indeed. you're saying even on that scale of things, I'm just it, thinking it was still it, misguided. It was hilarious. <laughs> One. Okay, I've saved us a lot of time to talk about the worst reboot ever. 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 Okay. okay. This is number one. And now, there was a, here's the premise. There was a very good film called Highlander. You know, oh, yeah, you love that movie. I love that, that film. It's 80s a very, sci-fi classic. Yeah, directed by Russell Mulcahy. Very clever, very thoughtful, great script, original idea, Excellent. The whole idea was you had a bunch of people who were born, special human beings who were born, and they were all journeying. They were immortals. They couldn't die until their heads were cut off. They were all basically moving towards this point where in which they would battle it out and there could only be one. Okay? It was a great success. Could only be one. There you go. In 1991, somebody said, you know, we need Highlander 2. We need (laughs) 2. Straight away, that's a problem, okay? Because there can only be one, right? (laughs) So how do they get around it? Well, firstly, they go, okay, we've got to stock the stable. So Russell Mulcahy comes back in to redirect. Okay, good call there. And Christopher Lambert's back. Sean Connery's back, even though he got his head cut off in the last one. Talk about a reboot. Uh, That was a reboot. Okay, and Virginia Madsen's in it as well. And here's this great moment. They're going to bring it back. How can they justify saying that there was only one, the whole culmination of the film, there could only be one person with the quickening, the power. In Highlander 2, the quickening, they said, 
They're all aliens. Actually, what <laughs> happened is that they didn't know they were suffering insomnia. They're really all from the planet Zeist, where their counter-revolutionaries against the government there were sent down to Earth. I mean, honestly, it is just the most stupid idea for a film. And you know why it's stupid? You know how I know it didn't make any sense? How's that? Because when they made Highlander 3... They pretended Highlander 2 didn't happen. <laughs> it's just like, okay, let's just maybe this multi-million dollar release with Sean Connery in it and Christopher Lambert. Let's just, shh, don't tell anyone. We'll just begin like we're beginning from the end of the first one. Three men of the planet Zeist, hear me. You gather together in secret for the last time. You suffer under the yoke of General Katana's rule for the last time. And you stand without a leader for the last time. Will you lead us, Ramirez? No, I'm not your leader. But because I see with eyes different from yours, I see a man with a great destiny before him. Who is he? Show him to us. Let him show himself. Let him feel the quickening. I never felt the quickening. Oh, no, wow. That, that's um, so no, that's just making me want to quicken. Along to next week <laughs> next to find week. out what's on next week's show, Mark. What happens when women are allowed to take their revenge in a fairly unrestrained way? The Beguiled, that's what happens. The cult sci-fi novel American Gods arrives on the small screen and on the big picture. And way bigger than Ben-Hur, director Christopher Nolan delivers Dunkirk. Next week, I don't think I'll be one of those. Well, I won't be the one. I'll be part of the one, <laughs> one team, of the, the big one of the ones here. I'll be Ben McKechn. <laughs> and I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you then. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 